have a little story for you. They're three boys. They're in, in the schoolyard, and they're bragging about their dads. The first boy says, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, and he calls it a poem. They give him 50 bucks. Second boy says, that's nothing. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, he calls it a song, and they give him a hundred bucks. The third boy says, please turn your phone off. <laughs> the third boy say, I, says, I got you beat. He says, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, he calls it a sermon, and it takes eight people to collect all the money. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to thank Pastor Kreloff for his help in understanding this wonderful book of Romans. The book of Romans. God's plan to save us was written by Paul and transcribed by Tertius around A.D. 58. Romans is the most comprehensive understanding of what salvation is all about. God chose this book to transform the world. Rome is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but figures predominantly in the New Testament. St. Augustine, a theologian and philosopher, read a few verses in chapter 13 and was converted to Christianity. Martin Luther, a Catholic monk, read Romans and understood that salvation comes by saving faith alone and not the church and not by works, and the Protestant Reformation was ushered in. John Wesley, who was a missionary to Indians in Georgia, was listening to Luther's uh, preface on his commentary to Romans and had an evangelical awakening. And that was reading only his preface. However, this book is not intended to evangelize. It was chosen by God to present to the church in Rome the most comprehensive understanding of what salvation is all about. It is not by accident that Romans is the first letter of all Paul's letters in the New Testament. It is the gateway to understanding all of Paul's writings and all of the New Testament. It started as a letter of commendation to introduce Phoebe, Chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 says she is a helper in the Centria Church and to please accept her in the Lord in the way God's people should. He also asked them to help her with anything she needed. She delivered the letter to them. Paul also wanted to explain his absence from them. He wanted to go for a very long time but couldn't. He had a heart for this church and said God is his witness, how he prayed incessantly for them, asking God to allow him to come to them. It was the most strategic church in the Roman Empire. Rome was the home of the Caesars and intellectuals, and most of the Mediterranean world was ruled from the city of Rome at that time. Rome had built an extensive road system that made travel easier and thus further enabled the gospel to be spread. Paul was not the founder of the church, and neither was Peter. No one knows for sure who founded the church. 
The best we can determine is the Roman church was founded by teachers and leaders from some of the Gentile churches in Asia Minor. The church in Rome did not personally know him, except by reputation. He had never been there. Some thought Paul was afraid to go to Rome because intellects would tear his message to shreds. But Paul refuted that, saying he's not ashamed of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He mentions his recent reason in verse 8 of chapter 1, that their faith was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. But the church had no apostolic leader, no one to guide them in the deep truths of the faith. He wanted to minister to them so they would be well grounded from an apostle's teaching. But he first had to win their confidence and convince them to listen to him. So he tells them in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that he is a bondservant of Christ Jesus and an apostle. And what he is preaching does not contradict scripture. It is not original with him. He is not making it up. He is proclaiming the message God already revealed in the Old Testament. Paul is writing from Corinth and was not sure he would ever get to Rome. He knew trouble awaited him in Jerusalem, but didn't know if he would get out alive, and his burden was that the church needed to know the heart of their salvation and the basis of their faith and life in Jesus Christ. One word describes the book of Romans. Righteousness. The righteousness of God. The gospel rests on the righteousness of God. God's righteousness has been revealed in the gospel. God is perfect. These Christians stand on God's righteousness, and so do we. And we understand that salvation is more than a story or a plan or a system of theology. It is the righteous dealings of a righteous God with an unrighteous people changing them and making them righteous. How can a righteous God save unrighteous people without compromising his own righteousness? In Romans, we'll see how. Chapters 1 through 8 presents God's righteousness. In chapter 1 through 3, the world is on trial. You are a sinner. He is righteous. All sinners are doomed. It is the judgment and wrath of God for sinners. People who think they are righteous because they have not indulged in moral excesses and pass judgment on others themse condemn themselves because they actually do practice the same things. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment... For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who practice, who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Chapter 4 is the solution. God sent Jesus to pay for our sin. So God's justice is satisfied. In chapter 5, our salvation is secure. We are bound eternally to Jesus Christ, preserved by his power and not by human effort.
Chapters 6 and 7 is the gospel of grace. We are dead to sin, but alive in Christ. We have been delivered from damnation. We are delivered in spite of our past. All whom God has justified will experience personal holiness. Chapter 8, again, the gospel is secure. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. No condemnation occurs only three times in the New Testament, all in Romans. In chapters 9 through 11, God's righteousness is defended. Paul defends God's righteousness in dealing with Israel. There are a few Christians in today's churches, and that doesn't trouble many people. However, if you lived in the first century and were Jewish, it would trouble you greatly. At Pentecost, many Jews came to Christ, as described in Acts. In Pastor Kreloff's book, God's Plan for Israel, he writes, Jewish believers in Rome, listening to Paul's words of security for Christ's church, questioned the validity of his assurance because they had doubts about Israel's spiritual security. As Hebrew Christians looked around their assembly and saw a predominantly Gentile church, that would be Romans 11.13, they wondered if God was through with Israel and was replacing her with the church. If he was, they reasoned, he had not kept his Old Testament promises to Israel. If God had been unfaithful in his dealings with Israel, he could not be counted on to be faithful in his dealings with the church. The apostle reveals the means by which God has spared the Hebrew nation in the past, the reason he continues to preserve the, the Jewish people in the present, and the plan he has for restoring Israel in the place of privilege in the future. In chapters 12 through 16, God's righteousness is demonstrated, practical righteousness. How do I live out a life that is righteous? What is our responsibility? What can we give to God after he has given us everything? Under the old covenant, God accepted the sacrifices of dead animals. But because of Christ's ultimate sacrifice, the Old Testament sacrifices are no longer of any effect. That's Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. For those in Christ, the only acceptable worship is to offer themselves completely to the Lord chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Chapter 13 shows us, in obedience, we are to submit to government. Verses 1 and 2 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. 
John MacArthur says this is the most formidable chapter summing up the Christian's responsibility to government. It is a universal chapter to application, meaning any government at any time in history, including today's. As bad as we may think our government is at times, it pales in comparison to others, especially in the first century and even some today. Actually, we are blessed. Chapter 14 is the law of liberty. We are to accept each other and not judge each other's weaknesses, especially believers who are unable to let go of the religious ceremonies and rituals of their past. Verses 1 through 3. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. This chapter is talking about bringing mature Christians and immature Christians together in unity. Paul in chapter 15 tells us we are to bear each other's burdens. John MacArthur's note says, the strong are not to simply tolerate the weaknesses of their weaker brothers. They are to help the weak shoulder their burdens by showing loving and practical consideration for them. We are to build up and strengthen them. As Christians, we live under the new covenant and are not under the authority of the old covenant. However, God's moral law has not changed and all scripture is spiritually beneficial. We are to be of the same mind with one another. Despite the strong and the weak having differing views on non-essential issues, we are to pursue loving spiritual harmony about matters on which the Bible is silent. Finally, chapter 16. Again, John MacArthur's Bible note. This chapter, which has almost no explicit teaching and contains several lists of mostly unknown people, is the most extensive and intimate expression of Paul's love and affection for other believers and co-workers found anywhere in his New Testament letters. It also provides insights into the lives of ordinary first century Christian and gives an inside look at the nature and character of the early church. The Book of Romans, God's plan to save us, the most comprehensive understanding of what salvation is all about. How blessed are we that we can study and learn and grow in the Lord so we can present ourselves a living sacrifice to our righteous and perfect God. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we just come before you with humble hearts, Lord. Thanking you so much for the blessing of, of this book, for the blessing of the Apostle Paul, for the lessons he's teaching us, Lord. May we, may we learn them sitting at the feet of the Apostle Father in a deeper way, Lord, so that we just might present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, Father. And we love you, and we just uh, pray that this semester will be a wonderful wonderful growing experience for each one of us and that we'll have good attendance too. We thank you and praise you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.